cliffcentral.com. Good afternoon. You're tuned into the Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. As usual, my name is Kingsley Kipuri and I'll be your host for the next hour. Greg, how are you feeling? Hey, I'm good, man. How's things? Um, always good to be back in the studio. I'm not sure why, even though we're here every week, being in the hot seat is always, you know, always exciting. I think it's just the great privilege of, you know, being able to speak to the people and, you know, have a bit of a conversation about what's going on in the world today. Um, so everybody tuning in, thank you so much. It was great having your tweets and all your emails and such based on last week's show. So a bit of a brief of what we'll be talking about this week. Firstly, um, we'll speak about the court case yesterday. Um, we're hearing about the secret ballot conversation that's, that, that's happening right now. Basically, is it constitutional? Is it unconstitutional? And what does the constitution say about whether we can have a secret ballot, um, sort of voting process as to whether, uh, as to the motion of no confidence in the president? That's in parliament. Secondly, we'll speak about food. Um, and the launchpad for that is a great article by Rebecca Davis on the Daily Maverick site about the price of food, the accessibility of food, the health of food. Um, and we'll speak to author Dr. Tracy Ledger uh, about her recent book, An Empty Plate. And lastly, we'll speak a bit about maritime maritime news and about piracy. So you'll remember a few years ago, probably about five, six years ago, there was a sort of massive conversation and outrage across the continent about safety and security. A lot of the, 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 the continent's imports and exports, including oil, which is extremely valuable, happens by sea. Um, and when you have no guarantee that the things you're expecting or the things you're sending out will arrive when you're using or losing billions of, of rands uh, you know, at sea, that's a big concern. So we recently had a report released about the state of, of, of maritime piracy, and there's some good news in there, some bad news in there. So we're really going to be talking about what's going on, who's doing well, what do we need to do to get better. Firstly, we'll start with yesterday. Um, Greg Nicholson was on the scene. In court, I think it was all day. I couldn't reach him all day, so I think it was like literally like 5 a.m. to 5 p.m. kind of situation, where this conversation with Chief Justice Mohang Mohang was sort of deliberating on this matter about the secret ballot. Uh, Greg, what can you tell us about yesterday? Well, first of all, it was a little bit like being in the twilight zone. You're right. Um, I couldn't get any cell phone signal within the court, within the constitutional court in Bramfontein. And so, <laughs> as the arguments just kept on going all day long. Do we know if that's on purpose or is that just a network issue? I think it? it's just my network doesn't. <laughs> I won't name the network, but <laughs> I think it's just me. So, not, not, not only was I completely overwhelmed by the detail of the legal arguments about this, um, on this issue of whether a no confidence motion in, in, the president should be held by secret ballot or not, and all of the technical detail, you know, going between the justices um, and the different the different advocates in the case, and there were about I don't know twenty twenty five lawyers or something there. Mm. So it was you know because there, there were a bunch of parties and applicants and respondents mm. who were all involved because mm. obviously it's a huge issue. Um, not only was I inundated with all that stuff, I couldn't communicate with the outside world. So. <laughs> So you didn't know if the rest of us were still there and what's going on and what's responding how. That's right. Okay. Um, I'm wondering, do we have any clarity? I know, I know the matter was not solved yesterday. It wasn't fine. There wasn't a final deliberation or decision on it, but do we have any clarity on whether it is constitutional, whether it will be allowed for the, for the motion of no confidence against the presidency to be held via secret ballot? So you're right. Um, at, at the end of sort of the marathon proceedings, uh, Judge Mohueng Mohueng, um, just, just said that the judgment would be reserved, which mm. I guess is the only option in such a case where you've heard so many arguments and counter arguments, 
um, on detailed constitutional uh, interpretations over, you know, <laughs> a good 12 hours or so. Yeah. Um, so judgment was reserved and we'll get, we'll get that in, I guess, in upcoming days and weeks. We'll, we'll have to wait to find out what the court says. But it did seem as though at least one issue, there seemed to sort of work towards a consensus. Um, although the parties still, still have their various, various standpoints. Mm. So obviously this issue starts with the, um, United Democratic Movement, um, Bantu Holomisa's uh, political party. Going to the speaker, um, after, after the President Zuma's recent cabinet reshuffle, um, where we saw, you know, so many ministers, um, um, removed, uh, the, the then downgrading, um, by two rating agencies of South Africa's, um, credit rating to, to junk status, um, and so on. And so the UDM, um, asked for a no confidence motion, mm. but requested that it be conducted by secret ballot. And so that's where, that's where the issue comes up. Obviously, I think, I think listeners to our shows and, and, and a lot of people would know that there's been a lot of no, not confidence motions in the past, yeah. past few years, um, particularly led by, by the Democratic yeah. Alliance. And there have been attempts and pushes to, to hold, hold that motion by secret ballot. The obvious implications being that the ANC is the majority party. Mm. And if it's members, if it's MPs, Choose to remove their president, they might face adverse consequences from from their party. Yeah. Um, but the attempts in the past to to hold a vote through no through a secret ballot mm. uh, have never been successful. There was um, there was an attempt within the National Assembly a number of years ago to change the rules to to allow for secret ballots, and that that was rejected. Um, there have been, I think, it's a couple of court cases where where people have attempted um, to to get the courts to to um, urge parliaments to hold a secret ballot, and none of them have been successful. So here comes this issue where people, I think there's a little bit more of a belief this mm. time that ANC MPs might vote against their president yeah. if they're able to do it in secret. Yeah. So the UDM decides... Well, first of all, the Speaker Blekembete, who's the one who gets to, has to make decide on these issues, yeah. announced that she doesn't have the discretion to change the rules. Me. Just that's yeah. right. No, she doesn't have the discretion because of these other court cases. Mm. Because the National Assembly decided itself not to change the rules. Yeah. Um, she then doesn't have now have the discretion to um, push past or override those court judgments or or the actions of yeah. of the National Assembly. Yeah, and I can see why there's a dual problem because if you vote. Anyone who's a who, anyone who votes, anyone in the ANC who votes in the National Assembly to have it by secret ballot will be taken as a proxy of the right. people who won't vote. That's vote. right. So so it's it's sort, of, sort of a vicious cycle yeah. of of majoritarianism, yeah. which well, it's vicious in a way. Yeah. Otherwise, it's sort of just how democracy works, yeah. right? Um, so basically, Holomisa decided the Constitutional Court is the only one that can actually sort out this detailed constitutional issue. Mm. Um, and over the day, hearing various different arguments, there was a, there was a, the question kept on coming up where the Chief Justice asked, does the Constitution allow, require, or prohibit a secret yeah. ballot when it comes to motions, motions of no, of no confidence in the President? Mm. And what that sort of means in, in the very, you know, detailed legal speak is if it, if the Constitution allows for a secret ballot to happen, um, that means 
you know, it's, it's probably up to the discretion of the speaker, the but speaker. she certainly can't say no. Like, I, I cannot do it. You know, mm. there's no chance. Um, then whether it requires it means does, does a motion of no confidence in the president considering, I guess it's con- considering the inherent risks yeah. of removing an incumbent. Would it not be in the spirit of the Constitution mm. to require to have mm. a mandatory secret ballot when votes for removing the president arise? Okay. Um, or there was also the issue of perhaps the Constitution doesn't allow for it at all. Perhaps it prohibits yeah. this idea of a secret ballot. Yeah. The Constitution is committed to openness. Yeah. If you want MPs and you want to know what they're doing, the secret mm. ballot, you know, hypothetically could kill the process of I know what the MPs of the party I voted for are up to. Yeah. That's right. And over the day, we saw varying, varying legal arguments. And so mm. there were, there are a number of political parties who are arguing for a secret ballot, but they have t- somewhat different interpretations of quite sort of what they want and, and their viewpoint on that question. Um, and then we saw the, the speaker's, um, advocate as well as a, a representative for the president both argue against the court imposing any requirement to have a, or, or any, Sort of urging the National Assembly to hold, hold a secret ballot. But okay. one thing that did sort of come out throughout the day, it sort of seemed that everyone, including the Speaker's Council, agreed that the Speaker can have the discretion okay. to, to hold a vote by mm. secret ballot. So that's still obviously they're very technical legal arguments all caught up in there. Yeah. But that's sort of where things started to head. And, and the justices of the Constitutional Court continue to sort of press that point. So the question then obviously is now, where, where do things go and how will this work out mm. practically, um, with the opposition parties and perhaps some ANC MPs mm. trying to remove President Zuma? So we'll have to wait for the judgment on it. Um, and, and even if the justices do sort of, um, agree, that Speaker Blackambete does have the discretion to um, to institute secret ballot um, proceedings. Will they sort of encourage or urge her to while leaving yeah. it up to her? Mm. Or will they just leave it up to her and then she can say yay or nay? Um, and obviously there'll be a lot of cynics who will, who will say, of course, if we just say she has the authority to do it, but also not to do it, mm. she'll say she'll refuse it. Or will they will they take a stronger point? And, and really push, um, for secret ballots going forward in, 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 in future no confidence motion proceedings. That's a lot from one day. And I'm just curious of all the implications from that. Like, you know, what, when do we get a final decision on this? Of, of course, it's happening in the background of the NC leadership race. Balekambete has been, you know, has come up as somebody who has aspirations to the top spot. And if it comes down to her and she's, I can imagine her thinking, you know, you know, what is the thing I do that puts me in the best position? There's a big argument that if, you know, if the current president, you know, will likely not continue as the president of the party post December, is it worth just ignoring all this and just getting on with it? I think, um, seeing that she's the mm. speaker of the National yeah. Assembly, yeah. um, Black and Better should never actually be taking into account any of her personal ambitions into her decision making, but. That's know, generous. Yeah. <laughs> maybe I'm more optimistic than I should be. Absolutely. I know how, um, I know how unpredictable court stuff can be. Do you have any mm. idea when we're going to hear back on no, this? No, it's, it's, it's just... probably going to be in the, in the days and weeks ahead. It's, okay. it's very hard to predict on something like this. And there were so many arguments and, and reams and reams of submissions to the court that it's, it's, 
unpredictable, but but we'll keeping we'll be keeping a close eye on when it does come out. Um, with with so much pressure um on around this issue yep. and and the court um constitutional court being um under the judiciary in general being under pressure for um potentially potential judicial overreach yep. and and um infringing on on the separation of powers doctrine I would imagine that the Constitutional Court would like to rule on this sooner rather than later. Absolutely. Well, there you have it. Greg Nicholson sort of reporting live, not quite, <laughs> from the Constitutional Court. Um, and it's just great to follow these matters. I know the court stuff can be sort of difficult to keep track of and the legal arguments can be quite, you know, quite lengthy. But, you know, it helps to have somebody who can cut through all the, all the legalese and tell us what's actually going on. So we look forward to that, you know, and hopefully justice prevails in the, in the spirit of the Constitution, you know, is, is upheld. We're going to switch up gears a bit and talk a bit about, you know, something I think we all should care deeply about, food. Um, those who follow the Daily Mary quite closely will have read an article by Rebecca Davis titled How Supermarkets Are Robbing Us Blind. On the line, we have uh, Dr. Tracy Ledger, uh, who's been holding on for a while, so thanks for your patience. Dr. Ledger, You're um, welcome. Uh, I'd just love to start from really, really the basic about your, your, your book, An Empty Plate. And before we even get to the substance of food, I'd just love to hear how this book came about and what was sort of your motivation in, 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 in writing this, this lovely book. <laughs> Um, I wrote the book, I think, out of a out of a mixture of sort of anger and and frustration. Um, you know, I, I I work in in the field, and I saw all sorts of things going on, and I also realised that the average South African's got no idea what what's going on. So I would bore people senseless. Whenever I met people that in the conversation would come around to food or agriculture, I'd say, "Do you know that this is going on? Do you know mm-hmm. that that's going on?" And I realised that most people had no idea what was going on, and so. So I just I decided to to write a book not just as an information tool but because I've I think it's a very useful um, activist tool uh, to have a book out there. It gives people access to a lot of information in in one place, and that really was my my motivation for writing the book. There's a I really believe that hunger and malnutrition and and the crisis in agriculture is the single biggest crisis in South Africa that we don't know about. Um, one thing that you you bring up is is this idea that you know that I think is imp- is pretty fundamental to people understanding of what's going on with food is this idea that quantity of food versus quantity of nutritious food that is actually leads to a healthy person and a healthy child that's that's a pretty fundamental idea that people need to understand when we talk about food. Yeah, exactly. It's 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 not even as as much as having a certain amount of calories every day as those. That's important. It's fundamentally what you're saying is to do with the quality of of the nutrition. So we have the situation where less than a quarter of South African children are actually getting sufficient nutrition. And on the other side, a quarter of all South African children are so malnourished that they're classified as, as stunted, which means their cognitive development is they learn in school, even if we had a great education system, they wouldn't be able to take advantage of it. They're much more predisposed to disease late in obesity, diabetes, heart disease. So they, they carry a burden of disease their whole lives. And there's also quite compelling um, scientific evidence to suggest that childhood malnutrition permanently damages the, the brain's impulse control mechanism, which makes those children much more predisposed to violence in later life and goes a long way towards explaining why we have such high levels of domestic violence in, in South Africa. There was a recent study done in Dipsert which showed that you know having a basic nutritious food in, in the house every day can reduce incidence of domestic violence by 40%. Wow, that's incredible. Can you just – so what you're saying, Doctor, is effectively that – 
when when children grow up hungry and and with malnutrition, they're going to be stunted later on in life, or the, or the chances of that are much higher. And obviously, we know who who is most affected by issues of hunger and malnutrition. It's the previously disadvantaged uh, South Africans and poorer and often black South Africans. Absolutely, it's it's become in this in this country over the last couple of hundred years, it's normal for poor black people to be hungry and for their children to, to suffer the consequences of that. And all this does is entrenches inequality because it means the poorest, blackest children in, in society are least likely to benefit from education, are most likely to suffer from disease, are less likely to be able to get a good job and are much more likely to live in violent homes and be the victims of violence themselves. And all of it comes back to nutrition and all of that comes back to the inability of poor households to be able to buy enough food to feed themselves. Mm-hmm. I think um, in, in Rebecca's piece on your book today, you mentioned that um, for, for, for an acceptable diet, families generally need to make it at least around, I think, 7,000 rand a month. And obviously we know many South Africans live on much less than that. Yes, I think the the the, the research that, that I've done and that confirms research that was done a couple of years ago by some researchers at PLOS is probably only about 20% of South African households can afford to, to feed themselves adequately. That's incredible. Now, mm. on you, you mentioned the, per, um, the perpetuation of inequality, and obviously we know what's often talked about these days in, in very heated discussions, the other side of the inequality coin, which is which is people maximizing trying to maximize their profits and, and potentially exploiting the poorest or the or the rest of society. And one of the interesting points that you make or, or that you go into quite a lot of detail on is this issue of why food is so expensive. Um can you just take us through this system of of exorbitant markups from from supermarkets and and, and retailers. Yeah. So so what we have is we we have a very concentrated food system in this country, and it's not just the supermarkets; it's also the processors. So you'll find a couple of people control the bread market, and we've seen how that's worked out. Um, we have a couple of people that control the milling market. The competition commission has also found people guilty of collusion in in the maize milling market. We have. Um, a level of supermarket concentration that is very similar to that in, in the United Kingdom. And the, this, of course, gives a couple of companies vast amounts of power in the market. That's the point of market consolidation and having a big market share. It means that you can extract value from both ends of the system. The bigger you are, the more able you are to extract preferential terms from farmers. So the terms of trade of farmers, if we think about the, the farm gate price, the farmer's share of, of the retail price, mm-hmm of food has been declining steadily. Farmers are going out of business. Farm workers are losing their jobs. South Africans are going hungry. And in between, we've got a couple of companies that are making um, a vast amount of money. And the dairy sector is a, is a good example of that. So what we've seen over sort of a 25-year period is a significant number, thousands of South African dairy farmers going out of business, 50,000 farm workers losing their job in the, in the sector. Farmers currently get paid less than five rand a litre for milk. And most consumers can't afford to drink as much milk as they should, especially children, because it costs too much money. What we had in the drought last year is that we were told that the, the price of milk went up because we had to pay the farmers more because even more of them were going out of business, which was true. But the farmers only got an extra 65 cents a litre, and we all paid an extra two to three rand a litre. And so, so this is why cannot 
eat. And I mean, I'm a, a raving <laughs> communist, but I, I do think that food is different. It's, it's not widgets. It's not shoes. It's not computers. If you don't eat, you die. And for all of us in this country, we should, we really should think of food as a public good. We all stand to lose by the perpetuation of inequality and the failure of our education system. We all stand to lose from our huge public health burden. We all lose every single day because of the incredible rates of domestic violence in this country. And we need to understand that it is in all of our best interests to have a more equitable and socially just food system. Now, one thing that I think comes across in the article, and, and, um, and I believe in your book also, is this, is the change between apartheid era treatment of farmers in the context of, 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 of sanctions and supporting local farmers mm. versus a, you know, a post 94 sort of relationship between, between farming mm. and openness to the continent and, and the impact mm. of that on, on mm. farmers. Could you speak a bit about that? Yeah, I mean, we had under under apartheid, white farmers were obviously um, black South Africans, black South African farmers were were dis- dispossessed of of their land. They not mm-hmm. only had their farms taken away from them, but they couldn't farm as tenant farmers anymore. It became illegal for white farmers to rent land um, to black farmers. So there was a class of very successful black farmers at the turn of the 20th century, which which was part of the the, the problem. Of course, white farmers didn't didn't enjoy that very much. And because white farmers were a very powerful political group and they wanted access to land, um, they not only benefited from land, but they benefited from a huge amount of of subsidies that, in fact, you know, kept farmers in business. But those subsidies also benefited consumers. So South Africa historically had a subsidized bread price. Bread was cheaper in this country than it was in in almost any other country in the world. Mm. And a whole lot of retail margins of food, the the maximum markup, for example, that a retailer could take on a liter of milk were all set by law. But what happened, of course, is that the the political importance of white farmers declined and maintaining this whole system became incredibly expensive. It it couldn't be maintained anymore. Plus, there was the the narrative of neoliberalism and, and trade, um, liberalization. And the idea was that if we created some kind of free market where all the farmers could compete on an equal footing, in, including black farmers who would now have their land restituted mm. to them, then everybody would benefit. Um, black farmers would be able to re-enter the market and earn a decent living and consumers would have access to cheaper food. And of course, that's not what happened. What, what had happened in that sort of licensing scheme is that a whole number of effective monopolies had been set up and these people just managed to entrench their power. So after 1994, for example, there was an explosion in small bakers. Most of them have now gone out of business. They cannot compete against Tiger Brands or Premier Mm. or or, or Pioneer Foods. So this consolidation in the market, and and what happened then is that as part of that legislation, there was a very important but little-known piece of legislation, the Marketing of Agricultural Products Act, which has essentially made it impossible for government to intervene in agricultural markets which is the way everybody gets their food in order to achieve goals of, of, of social justice and equity. I mean, absolutely. And I think that's just so important for, to have some context and where all these things come from. Mm. Um, I mean, one thing that, that you've raised, and I suppose the big question to anyone listening to this is, why is there no, you know, revolt about this? We have, you know, Zuma must fall. Why don't we have, you know, food prices must fall? Is there, are there obstacles to people, you know, standing up and saying this is unsustainable? Do people see this as a personal problem? Like I can't afford food. I need to make a plan rather than systemic. Yeah, it's 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 one of the great questions. I mean, as South Africans are not shy about protesting about things and sometimes violently protesting about things. But, you know, 
thousands of children die of starvation in this country every year, officially. They're admitted to hospital for starvation and they die of starvation. Mm. And these statistics are published every year and mm. no one seems to get upset. And I'm a little bit at a loss to understand exactly why that is. I have a couple of ideas, though. I think that um, it's deeply humiliating for people to admit that their families are starving. I think it's, it's very personal. I think that, you know, the time I've spent out in communities, it's, it's a deeply humiliating and very difficult thing to have to ad- admit. It marks you out as, as, as very poor. It, um, you know, and, and people don't want that, that marking out. Mm. And I do think on the other side, I think it's, it's almost become, it's become normal, as I said, in this country for poor black people to be hungry. Um, and all sorts of other dreadful things are becoming normal. It's become so normal in some communities for women to trade sex for food or for money mm. to buy food for their children mm. that it's become normal behavior. And, you know, I don't think any of that's helped by the fact that government doesn't seem to think it's much of a big deal mm. either. You know, there are no, there's no perception that this is a national crisis, that, that this is unsustainable, that we cannot go on like this. People's lives are being ruined day in and day out on a massive scale. The only thing that sort of comes to mind for me now is, is what do we do? It sounds like such a massive program, problem, sorry. And I'm just well, curious about what, well, you know, what the you small know, scale the farmers it's, need, what do the larger ones need? Do we need some kind of regulation against what sounds a bit like an oligopoly problem with a really major change controlling the, the purchasing of food? Where, you know, where do we start? Mm-hmm. Look, I think the, the first, the first thing it, always, it's like being an alcoholic. Until you admit you've got a problem, you can't. Start fixing yourself. <laughs> so I think the the first thing really is for this this general realization by by communities and by all South Africans that first of all that this is all of our problem. You know, even if you personally do not have a problem with putting food on your table, mm. you stand to lose a great deal by the damage that this is doing our our society. We need mm. to understand that this is a priority problem. It drives crime, it drives violence, it drives inequality, it, it drives all sorts of things. And we need to put pressure on policymakers to start to to take this this problem seriously and particularly at local government. Mm. There's an awful lot that can be done at a local government level to connect s- small scale producers of food directly with um, consumers. I live near Tembisa and there are almost a thousand small scale um, agricultural projects, food production projects going on in, in Tembisa. There is, um, next to Dipslot, which is a place which has huge problems with food insecurity, um, the C- city parks owns Northern Farms, which is a, a farm that they use to clean, um, sewage water on. It's a massive, massive hundreds of hectares of prime farmland. Why is it not being turned into a huge community agricultural project that would employ thousands of people and provide vast amounts of extremely cheap quality food to mm. the people who, who live in Dipstadt. Well, it's because mm. nobody thinks that this is really a problem that needs to be addressed. So we have resources. We have plans. There are thousands of examples from around the world of how these things can be addressed, but they cannot be addressed if we don't start by saying this is a massive priority. I mean, absolutely. And 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 on a larger scale, of this, is there more support we can give to you know, to some small scale farmers, to 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 perhaps get bigger and 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 break up what seems you know to be a large control by some of the bigger brands. Well, of course we can because mm. it's our money that that keeps the system going. Mm. Every single one of us, it doesn't matter how poor we are, we go into a supermarket, 
and we buy food and we buy food that's produced by the by the big processors in South Africa. We've got a history of consumer boycotts in this country for for political goals. What could be more important than the fact that, you know, a quarter of our children are doomed to lives of poor health and 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 violence. And we need to start using our money to say that that this is this is not negotiable. For example, we should insist that our supermarkets do not buy from farmers who treat their farm workers badly. Why, why are we, why is our money going to buy products from farmers who, who are still illegally evicting farmers from the land, treating them badly, making them live in sub, in substandard housing? We don't need to put up with that. It's our, it's, you know, it's, we need to understand collectively we are the power in the system because it's our money that keeps, that keeps it going. Absolutely, and I love the angle of, of of citizen action. I mean, often when we cover these big issues, you know, we can one can feel helpless. So I love that mm. there's you know basic thing that I can do with my hundred rand, you know, tomorrow. Um, yeah, and, for sure. And, and lastly, doctor, before we let you go, I'm just curious about the mm. sort of legislative angle. You mentioned an agri agri food policy council. You mentioned a review of the marketing of agricultural products act. I'd like you just speak about what legislative mm. sort of levers we can pull um, to improve the issue. Yeah. I think there's a couple of things. I mean, my personal view is that that marketing of Agricultural Products Act should be scrapped because it's unconstitutional, because we have a constitutional guarantee to the right to food. In fact, Section 27 and Section 28 of the Constitution talk about the, the right to food. In Section 27, it's a general right, and in Section 28, it's children's right to food. Mm. So we cannot possibly have a piece of legislation that removes government's ability to enforce the right to food. So that's the first thing. Um, the other thing is that there, there are, there's all sorts of legislation um, in other countries, for example, which makes it illegal for, for supermarkets to extract certain terms from, from, from small farmers, which is putting them out of business. We need um, more transparency in terms of what is, what is going on with our food pricing. I, for one, would be a huge fan of legislation, which says that the supermarkets have got to put on the product, like a bottle of milk, the price that the farmer got paid mm. so that consumers can see exactly what is going on. You know, but there are all sorts of other things consumers can do. You know, you can get together, make yourself a buying club and go and buy directly from the fresh produce markets mm. in Joburg and, um, and Shwane. Mm. Find a farmer and, and, and get food directly from them. But we do need much better legislation in terms of giving preferential access to small farmers in, in, in retail space and in terms of, of giving consumers information about understanding how their money is perpetuating a particular kind of system. Absolutely. Uh, Dr. Mm. Ledger, it sounds like we all have a, a, a sort of a role to play in correcting this issue. Thanks for the interview and thanks for the important book. And we'll just continue to sort of get the word out there. You're welcome. Thanks for the time. Okay. Well, thank you. Um, a piece or, or a quote that I forgot to mention in the, uh, you know, that Dr. Ledger's quoted as saying is, and so an empty plate is not just about the absence of a meal. It's about the absence of care, the absence of dignity, the absence of kindness. These are real moral evils of our food system. Um, and I just love that it brings it down to that, you know, um, what kind of dignity can you live with if you can't access a full plate of food or beyond that if you are accessing a full plate of food but it's not giving you the nutritional value for your cognitive ability your physical ability how can we expect people to do better in school do better at work and you know contribute to an economic and social system that we're all trying to grow i found it fascinating the links that they've been able to at least i guess their estimates are but they've been able to study and look at actually the effects of, of malnutrition early on in life mm. Um, on, on what sort of circumstances you might end up in or what sort of character you might be. 
later on in life, and that that the doctor can link um, malnutrition to things like potentially to things like violence. Yeah, and you build decision making and assess risk and so on. Yeah, and then. I know you and I have been talking a little bit um, off off air this week to each other about um, some of the some of the stories that have been raised. You yeah. know, with um, with uh, uh, after the the very shocking Karabo uh, Mokweno murder, um, and the sort of tough truths that uh, I think the society has to face in terms yeah. of in terms of the violence we're living in, and, and then to think that something like that, like malnutrition, could be a contributor. To these issues, I think is really important to note, and and it sort of shows how perhaps complex and systemic some of these challenges are. Absolutely, I mean, I mean, you and I spoke a lot about this off air. Um, yeah, last week was really what I felt was like a sort of collective, sort of depression or realization um, of 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 the cons- at least for men who don't have to you know face this every day um of just the, the 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 daily realities and the and the daily difficulties of being a woman in South Africa and when people say there's a you know there's a warm women's bodies and use you know words like that it's 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 you know for some people it sounds like a metaphor or it sounds like an exaggeration and it's 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 really not when you can't get on a taxi and get home safe when you can't get an uber and get home safe when you're not Safe in your home You're not safe outside your home There's this great Daily Vox article About how to You know how to stay safe And you know The list is Don't stay in your house Because half of women Are murdered in their house By their partner Don't go outside Because mm-hmm. the other half Are killed outside For example On taxis Don't be a minor Don't go to school And so on um, Which just I think affirms This idea that there's 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 Almost no safe places for women in this society. Um, and I, I think it's a good idea to mention for our listeners that Kingsley and I were talking about looking at some of these issues this week on the, on this week's show and, and, and using today to really explore some of these issues in depth. But our schedules and, and the level of debates that we sort of went into, um, sort of prevented that from happening this week. But we're going to look at it perhaps. Um, next week or, or, or in the, the upcoming weeks and would like to do an in-depth sort of focus and, and an, an extensive look on the different angles of these issues. So if you do have any um, recommendations or requests or ideas about how, how you'd like to, us to cover some of these issues, um, perhaps if there's any creative ways or if you feel that there's topics that might be getting neglected, um, feel free to get in touch with us. Uh, you can can look at our Twitter handle, which is um, at DMShowZA. Yep. Or even feel free to email, email me, which is uh, greg at dailymaverick.co.za. Sure, if you're shy to email there, Greg directly, there's dmshowza at gmail.com. But basically, we want to explore angles of, you know, the daily realities of women. We want to explore sort of the so more systemic sort of patriarchal influence on, you know, the trajectory of a woman, especially black women in South Africa. We have to also talk about masculinity and violent masculinity and what makes, you know, a Kingsley go out there and, and harm his partner or harm somebody on his taxi or violate somebody in the street. Um, so we really want to dig into some of these issues and, you know, hopefully you can, you know, help us do that correctly. Okay. We're just going to change gears a bit and go into the sort of the last segment on our on our show. And we'll be speaking to, to Timothy Walker, someone who's an expert on all things maritime and all things that happen at sea. Um, Tim, there was a state of maritime report released by Oceans Beyond Piracy this month. And you were there for the launch. Um, so we'd love you to just talk us through what the key takeaways from this are. Just, just quickly, I want to jump in there. Tim, the a state of anything report I think sounds like one of the most boring things you can think of, but then you add piracy and it sounds awesome. Good afternoon, good afternoon, Greg. Thanks very much for asking me on the show. I, 
I agree. Um, piracy really is the topic which gets a lot of people interested when it comes to maritime security. Um, There's also a new Pirates of the Caribbean coming out this year, I've heard. So just, I think I think we're, I think we're helping with the advertising there in some fashion. Um, it's uh, it was it was uh, it was good to be at the report. Um, it was uh, I was invited along, and I'm very glad that to see that the uh, the interest there was was not just about piracy, but but uh, using those kind of counter piracy tools. We're talking about better information sharing between navies, more naval capacity, but also just a kind of improved international cooperation to fight new crimes. Um, often we'll find reports of. Um, on counter piracy patrols, illegal fishing vessels being encountered or human trafficking vessels being encountered or drug smuggling. Um, what we can see from the report, what we take away is not just the state of piracy, but the state of insecurity and, and the lack of governance of our, of, uh, of shipping on the oceans, um, which, which is, um, something which, uh, Africa has a, a big stake in in the future. And, uh, it's exciting to see that, uh, this report is getting a lot of traction. Absolutely. Um, I'd love if you could just talk us through, you know, some of the themes that came out of that. Um, specifically, there seems to be a theme or an idea that perhaps, you know, the global community or the shipping industry has become a bit complacent about the, about its actions, about sort of combating and policing piracy. Yeah, absolutely. The, the, um, the, the, the tracking of the costs demonstrate that a lot of, uh, uh, from 2010, when it was around 7 billion, it was estimated being spent on, on countering piracies down to about 1.7 billion. It's quite a drop. Um, and a lot of that goes down to the fact that there are fewer ships patrolling, that perhaps ships are taking what they might see as more risks by trying to save costs by um, sailing closer to Somalia. And, and the recent incidences off off the Horn of Africa are illustrative often of um, of a change of behaviour in shipping where they've uh, perhaps a, a perception has arisen that piracy has been defeated mm. or that piracy is no longer a threat. Um and, and unfortunately, some people have uh, sailed very close to the shore. I mean, if you, if, there's, um, if you look at a map of, of the locations of the incidences, there's been two incidences which occurred out on the high seas. But um, three or four major incidences off Somalia have occurred very close to the Somalia shores, almost mm. within a few nautical miles. Mm. Now, <laughs> on, a, on a technical point, which I'll leave aside, that's not technically piracy, but it, it, it's still <laughs> a maritime crime which navies need to respond to. And uh, unfortunately, the response from navies has been very robust and very quick. Mm. Uh, the reason we haven't seen perhaps an explosion of incidences uh, in recent weeks is because there's no there's no encouragement for pirates. No ransoms have, have, have been reported to have been paid uh, and navies have been on the scene very quickly and have, and have been very robust in, in, in boarding ships. Uh, so so there's no incentive for pirates to continue or uh, trying to test the waters, as it were. I think a lot of the time, a lot of the incidences we can see now are, are pirates testing the waters on a relatively vulnerable ship. Um, it's uh, it, the, the monsoon in the Western Indian Ocean is about to hit as well, which will create the conditions which are, will prevent piracy. So we, what we might see now is is a drop off of interest uh, from pirates in, in in trying to attack ships, which might resume later on this year. But uh, it's 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 quite encouraging at the moment that, uh, like I say, the, um, the the incentives for pirates haven't really uh, haven't really been very strong. I mean, that's interesting, Tim. You sound a lot more confident than sort of some responses to the report, which sounds like the response is saying, as we decrease uh, sort of our investment in, in 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 policing and security on the oceans, the pirates are just going to come back. So they never went away. They've just been waiting for the opportunity to to start the kidnapping again. Yeah, that, 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 that's the line I, I like to put out is, is that pirates, 
piracy has never really gone away. Um, uh, the reports from 2016, the State of Maritime Piracy Report, and going back further as well, will often point out that there have been pirate attacks against local fishing vessels. Mm. Uh, the absence of attacks has been against merchant vessels, large cargo vessels or, or international shipping. Often local fishing has still been a victim of pirate attacks, uh, which it doesn't really come through in a lot of um, reporting. Often the big headline figures of you know, 200 attacks in 2015 or, or, or 400 attacks in 2011 don't disaggregate or, or, or untangle all the various incidences which have occurred. But when you do dive down into those numbers... Uh, what often emerges is 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 the fact that uh, conditions on shore have not changed for a lot of people, so they're very a lot of people are very vulnerable to criminal networks recruiting them to be pirates. Um, uh, but at the same time, there have been incidences still, which means we 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 can't really drop our our guard, as it were. But we've also got to be very vigilant that we don't let a narrative take hold, which is to say everything's relatively stable mm. now. We can we can reduce the um, but but a crucial point just to make as well is that it's not necessarily an argument to have more navies patrolling or, or more military firepower in the region. It's about, again, looking at the fundamental issues on land. Um, that relying on an offshore solution to piracy is, is only half. It's only one side of the coin. The other half is to look at prosecutions on land about um, are pirates able to put to shore again. And unfortunately, like I say, in many Somali villages... Um, there is a lack of governance or a lack mm. of central authority. There's a lack of also deterrence against taking up a criminal mm. enterprise like this. And that's where um, not just Somalia, but Somali partners and the international community now to refocus their efforts. And like I say, there is that that message can be perceived within these reports. Mm. It needs to be the, the step going forward. I mean, it's really interesting that you bring that up. That 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 almost sounds like saying there's only so far you can get by putting a ship on every you know you know inch of mile in the ocean to look for pirates but until there's some kind of stability and governance and justice in a lot of the places where these stem from like Somalia there's only so you know so far you can go yeah the area is vast i mean um the the area to patrol is easily uh, the size of the sahara mm. uh, trying to patrol it with less than 20 ships sometimes i mean it's uh, it's ridiculous can you imagine trying to have a, a patrol car trying to <laughs> Um, do the similar kind of land at the same kind of speeds. Um, say the root causes and and, and the, the bigger questions as well going forward. Of um, uh, for instance, uh, there's a, a growth of bases in a small country called Djibouti in the Horn of Africa, um, which are there to be logistical facilities to provide for ships to redock and refuel, so they can continue their kind of piracy patrols. Mm-hmm. But um, but those aren't necessarily singular purpose they're not there just to fight piracy so you have this growing international interest in in um almost using piracy as a pretext or as a reason to be more involved in the region uh, if you look at a map of the horn of africa and look at where the piracy incidences occur you can often well you can't help but ignore the fact that uh, the north of the map is dominated by yemen which is uh, undergoing a very destructive civil war where there's a, a great fear of spillover and even perhaps rendering that the Red Sea and the Suez Canal, um, unpassable for shipping. Um, so there's a great international interest in not just saying that we are fighting piracy, but being able to have the kind of naval or military capability in the region mm. to um, encounter and will take care, take care as it were, of all risks. And that, and not just that as well, but um, uh, Islamic terrorism in in the region as well. 
so there's a great deal of international interest in being able to have a, a permanent uh, foothold in the region, as it were. Uh, with piracy being one of the issues, but uh, but unfortunately, like I say, piracy has been a. In one respect, it's a means for uh, further policy interventions. Um, and on my side, I'd like it to be the means to further policy interventions, but but looking into other maritime crimes which uh, which affect us all, like say illegal fishing, trafficking, and environmental crime. So um, there, there's a there's an interesting sorry, sorry, break happening in the for, in sorry, the future. Yeah. Sorry, Tim, I was just going to ask about that. That there, there obviously piracy can can sound like an interesting issue at times, and it can be quite dramatic, and also the financial implications can can sometimes be quite high. But when it comes to issues of illegal fishing, do you find that sometimes they're overlooked, although they're just as or more important, um, um, and, and, and with a greater, stronger focus on an issue like piracy? Mm, I think I think illegal fishing has been a problem for a, a good number of years now, whereas piracy uh, comes in, in in waves, as it were. The interest drops, and, and defeating piracy can be can be accomplished. Um, the, te- the tactics used if you have guards on ships or um, patrolling, but making sure that you also have capacity building within villages is effective. Whereas countering illegal fishing has been a long-term problem, which has become um, sometimes rather intractable. Intract- I'm not saying the right word. <laughs> but um, using the same tools is crucial. I mean, to fight illegal fishing at sea, to be able to patrol and police requires coast guards and navies and if you're going to have an in, incre- interest in inc- improving maritime security prevent piracy for instance then you need to have that long-term focus often i find that the the, the framing of the question of how do we protect our oceans from harm or how do we protect our maritime industries from harm is not really as as future orientated as it should be for instance african countries are going to have an increased population in the future we're looking at reduced fishing stocks because of illegal fishing, not just in piracy regions, but all around Africa. If those fishing stocks are under stress and yet we're looking at, to them to be the source of food for the future, as well as livelihoods and, in, and uh, industries, that should really prompt a lot more questioning about uh, where our priorities are. And, and I believe it, and well, I hope it will um, point in the direction of taking more of an interest in those uh, illegal fishing matters and how do we get collaboration between countries to make sure that fishing vessels which cross between boundaries can mm-hmm. be arrested or, or, or just even monitored sometimes but making sure that there's a real deterrent to prevent that happening and then at the same time having the incentives for um, local fishing communities or the protection for local fishing communities to benefit from fishing in the future just, again so, sorry Tim, um, we're running out of time so i just want to throw one one last quick question at you mm. has in, in terms of who is taking the lead on combating piracy, who's footing the bill for it, mm. how has that changed in recent years? Um, are we seeing somewhat of a decline from perhaps the NATO countries? And is there perhaps an, an assertion from a country like China, perhaps, to try and stamp its authority somewhat more on the international stage? Well, China's been involved right from the start. It's become increasingly um, integrated itself into the counter-piracy patrols, which is very encouraging because... A lot of people look to China to provide more um, so it's international security. Um, a lot of the costs were borne by shipping companies themselves, like say the, the costs of uh, a longer journey because of uh, burning more fuel or, or hiring guards is often uh, borne by the companies themselves. So the reduction in costs is often because fewer companies are now employing or spending that money. They're not employing private security guards, which I'm not necessarily saying are the correct way of doing things. It's just a means of protecting your ships. So the reduction in costs is, can be seen from private as well as 
state organizations like navies. Uh, fewer navies are patrolling, it's true. So um, I think uh, one crucial thing to now take away, just to finish off the interview, mm-hmm. is, is about African countries providing security as well. As I say, there's increasing international intervention. Offshore patrolling is often undertaken by international navies. So um, African countries are, should we say, benefiting in some fashion, but they're also being harmed in some fashion as well because their capacity is not being built. They're not able to patrol the seas or to undertake these kind of activities too. They often lack the money to do so, to pay for it. But they also are in a very disadvantageous position. And unfortunately, that's going to really be felt in 10 to 20 years' time if we don't have African navies undertaking a lot of the the tasks which uh, occur in the African maritime domain. Um, unfortunately, we can look at a very insecure future. Wonderful, Tim. Thanks so much for the thorough wrap up, and you know, as usual, we'll continue to come to you when there's when there's maritime news. Thanks so much. For the next time, thank you very much. Fantastic. Uh, that was Timothy Walker from the Institute for Security Studies, uh, talking about the state of maritime report that just came out. A massive thank you for tuning in this week. Um, thanks to everybody we spoke to, Greg Nicholson, of course, covering the stuff in court. Um, Tracy, your doctor, Tracy Ledger on her book, An Empty Plate, and most recently, Tim Walker. Thanks everybody for listening and, and you know, continuing to download and share the podcast. Your input is greatly appreciated, as well as everybody who joined us on Twitter. That's this week's version of the, not version, but episode rather, of the Daily Maverick Show on cliffcentral.com. That's Greg Nicholson, Kizdikpuri. Thanks so much. See you next week, same time, same place. Show on cliffcentral.com. Cliffcentral.com.